Welcome to Cato Audio for March 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Suzette Kilo details her fight against eminent domain abuse. George Leaf dispels myths of higher education. Economist J.D. Foster evaluates how the Obama administration plans to tax and spend. And security expert Bruce Schneier makes a connection between effective counterterrorism and evolutionary psychology. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As you hear this, we are now just a month and a half or so into the Obama presidency. And uh, although the Bush administration seems to be a pleasantly distant memory, we have civil liberties issues still on the table for the Obama presidency. And I'm talking now with Gene Healy, a vice president at the Cato Institute and author of the book, The Cult of the Presidency, and David Ritgers, a legal policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Now, before we get into some of the things that Obama has done and has promised to do as president, dealing with liberty in general, let's round up the Bush administration and uh, talk about sort of where he left us in terms of civil liberties. Gene Healy? Well, the Bush administration pushed a very radical view of executive power. They had, uh, in place of the Constitution separation of powers system, what they adopted was what you could call a neo-constitution, where there's one branch and it has virtually all of the powers. And any national security issue was basically uh, the president was sole constitutional decider. So among the issues they, they pressed, among the staggering claims of executive power they pressed was the idea that the president could capture an American citizen on American soil that he suspected of being a terrorist and hold that citizen without charges or access to counsel for the duration of the war on terror. That was the claim in the Padilla case. There was the so-called terrorist surveillance program where in secret for several years, the president carried out a warrantless wiretapping program in contravention of the statutory framework that Congress had set up in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And uh, the, on a whole host of issues, the claim was that uh, when the president decides that this is a national security matter, then he cannot be checked by Congress or by legal process. David Ritgers? We closed out with that uh, as the paradigm, and now we're moving into an era where there are some promising initial signs in terms of uh, limits on executive power. I think we have to go forward with the the reality check that, uh, that restraint is not a real check on power. That's basically a check that's in the mail promise on civil liberties. And on that note, what has Obama done thus far as president to indicate his self-restraint? Well, there were a couple of promising executive orders in the first days, one involving stating fairly clearly that the United States would abide by the federal laws and treaty obligations governing torture. Now, in a sense, this is a little like uh, what George W. Bush called in another context the soft bigotry of low expectation. So the, the president announces that his administration is going to follow the laws on torture. But actually, after eight years of Bush, this was a pretty positive development. But as David says, these are early days yet, and there have been some signs that uh, they may not mean what they say on some of these issues. 
one of these issues is dealing with the detainees in Guantanamo. We have an executive order mandating the closing of Guantanamo within one year. And a snapshot as we stand now, there's about 245 men in custody. The D.C. District Court judges are dealing with them, some quicker than others. Right now, we're releasing about two-thirds of those that uh, of the ones that we've reviewed. The real problem in this is Yemen. We've originally had 109 out of the 800-some from Yemen, and we still have 100 of those guys. There's a strong fundamental streak in the country, and uh, they've managed to creatively lose all of the bombers from the USS Cole incident that they convicted in their own courts. So that's really going to be the flashpoint moving forward is what do we do with the guys from Yemen. We also have uh, an outlook on trying detainees coming down the pipe somewhere. Uh, We have a 120-day review process. One thing that's being mentioned is uh, the prospect of a national security court. I think that this is the worst of all worlds. It is the bridge that uh, that brings together our uh, common defense and our domestic tranquility and melds them in a way that I'm not comfortable with, where we'd have these uh, secret trials, essentially a star chamber to try them. And uh, we already have courts that work, federal courts, courts martial. And when they provide a verdict, it's clear that the social function, the message is that uh, this is a guilty person who needs to go away. And any court that we use to try these folks in Guantanamo needs to do that or it's not serving our purposes at all. What has President Obama, at least in the campaign or in his early days, said about that idea? We haven't had a real read from Obama on the National Security Court idea. There's several different proposals out there. I'm hoping that that's not something that becomes a new and different idea that's pushed as a panacea because I simply think it's not. Gene Healy? I would say one positive move out of Obama is in the area of personnel. The Bush administration famously had lawyers in the Office of Legal Counsel, among them John Yoo, who was referred to as Dr. Yes by John Ashcroft at one point. The Bush administration had people in the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the office in the Justice Department that provides legal advice to the president as to the legality of his actions, people that were willing to roll over for virtually any claim of executive power. The early signs out of Obama is that he actually expects to have lawyers that will restrain him sometimes, that will not be Dr. Yes, that will not tell him that anything he thinks is prudent is legal. Don Johnson, the uh, law, former law professor, former OLC official that he's appointed to head the Office of Legal Counsel, has a long paper trail advocating a restrained view of executive power. One of her lieutenants, Marty Lederman, a Georgetown law professor, also has taken position strongly against the Bush theory of executive power. So this is a positive development. I think it's important to stress that, uh, again, that personnel can be changed and executive orders can be repealed either by a future president or by this president if political conditions on the ground change. And the interesting thing will be to see what happens when the rubber meets the road and there is public or congressional pressure for a different direction and a stronger hand by the new president and whether he resists that. February 10th was a a fairly significant day when it comes to uh, Obama policies versus Bush policies when it comes to the so-called war on terror. This is from the New York Times. In a closely watched case involving rendition and torture, a lawyer for the Obama administration seemed to surprise a panel of federal appeals judges on Monday by pressing ahead with an argument for preserving state secrets originally developed by the Bush administration from 
Anthony Romero at the American Civil Liberties Union. He says, this has not changed. This is definitely more the same. Candidate Obama ran on a platform that would reform the abuse of state secrets, but President Obama's Justice Department has disappointingly reneged on that important civil liberties issue. Yeah, this is the the first uh, example. A lot of what we saw in the executive orders, you know, Gitmo's a good example. Uh, there are promises to appoint a commission or promises of good behavior. And when it came time to uh, take a stand on how the Obama administration was going to approach the state secrets privilege, they uh, disappointed quite a few people and took a position identical to that of the Bush administration. Just to explain that, no one doubts that there are national security secrets and nobody wants genuine national security secrets coming out in an open court. The doctrine that prevents that is the, is called the state secrets privilege. Unfortunately, it's been courts have taken an enormously deferential uh, uh, approach to this, and the Bush administration advanced this, expanded this privilege further than it had been expanded by prior presidents. Normally, the way this privilege is supposed to operate, and the way it usually had operated under prior presidents is that particular pieces of evidence are shielded from admission in open court, and sometimes that does result in the ultimate dismissal of an entire case. The Bush administration's real innovation, which they used more than any prior administration, was to use the state secrets doctrine to argue that entire cases were state secrets. So in challenges to the president's violation of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the claim wasn't we can't let in this one document, this one or testimony on this one particular issue that may actually have bearing on national security, but the entire case has to be dismissed. And in this case, the case of, uh, of five plaintiffs who claim they were tortured suing a subsidiary of Boeing that transported them to places like Egypt and Morocco, the Obama administration, which had signaled earlier that it wasn't going to use state secrets privilege this broadly, actually used it in the exact same way that Bush did, arguing that the entire case should be quashed uh, and there shouldn't be any legal process on this at all. That's a very dangerous use and expansive use of the state secrets privilege. We talked a little bit earlier about personnel and the number one person that uh, Barack Obama has hired for dealing with these kinds of issues is Eric Holder, the Attorney General of the United States. What did we know about him before he was nominated? Well, he symbolizes a lot of what uh, people came to dislike about Janet Reno's Department of Justice. And uh, he actually signed on also to an amicus brief supporting the district in the Heller litigation. So he takes a very strong stance against the individual right to bear arms and sort of the militarization of uh, federal law enforcement. He is a big proponent of using that hammer to uh, pound everything that looks like a nail. So we're going to see a lot of the things that we did not like in any of the last uh, several attorneys general I don't think those trends are going away. So he is generally no friend to civil liberties. In a post-Heller world, the Supreme Court decision that firmly stated that there is an individual right to keep and bear arms, shouldn't we expect that Eric Holder would be bound in some way, that he couldn't act on what we suspect are his preferences? He did make that small concession at his confirmation hearings that Heller did bind a the government to some extent. However, what the post-Heller world looks like, I mean, we're still fighting out to exactly what that means. The D.C. 
code has been amended. They've copied and pasted the California assault weapons ban, which is the most onerous in the nation, and just pasted it into the D.C. code. And there's actually a circuit split developing amongst the federal circuits, which is when circuits disagree about a, uh, a certain issue. And then usually what happens is the Supreme Court will take up the issue and then resolve it and, and pick one side or the other as how the circuits have split. So amongst the circuits, the fifth circuit down in Texas had incorporated the right against the states, the Second Amendment, meaning that the states had no more right to infringe uh, the right to keep and bear arms than the federal government did. And we've seen recently that the uh, Second Circuit in New York has declined to incorporate, uh, that there will not be a restriction on state gun laws. The Ninth Circuit out in California, we've had oral arguments January 15th, and the panel there was uh, pro-Second Amendment. It was really about as good as we can hope for in the Ninth Circuit, uh, perhaps better. And uh, in Chicago, there were three suits, two by the NRA against Chicago and Oak Park, and uh, one uh, from Alan Gura of D.C. versus Heller fame. All three lost in the district court, which we expected, knowing the setting there, and they've moved up to uh, the Court of Appeals and have been consolidated. So that's still developing as we speak. Trying to find some sort of... uh some more positives and the fact that we've changed to a new administration. Barack Obama has changed the presumption of openness for federal agencies with regard to freedom of information requests. And he did promise during the campaign that he would end medical marijuana raids in states that had approved laws that allowed for it. Sure. There's states like California where the state's voters had legalized the use of uh, cannabis for medical conditions. And the Bush administration, remember, uh, despite its claims to be pro-federalism, despite its claims to respect the Tenth Amendment, they uh, fought very hard in court in the Rach case to maintain the right to prosecute sick people who uh, choose under their state laws to use marijuana. Obama has promised to end that. Unfortunately, just recently, there was still in, even within the new administration, there were a number of raids on marijuana dispensaries in the Los Angeles area. And uh, Obama's spokespeople are saying that, well, we have to wait till there's a new DEA head appointed, which uh, strikes me as a little odd. Uh, you know, Eric Holder, you, you think, could could put a stop to this right away. Again, we'll, we'll have to wait and see, but there were promising statements made on the campaign trail that the new president doesn't think this should be a priority for the Justice Department, and uh, I think he's right. But that was the argument he made. He said it wasn't a priority, not that, oh, this we got this thing called the Constitution that tells us we have to uh, respect the laws of uh, the states. Well, yeah, it may be asking too much to expect uh, somebody from where Barack Obama comes from on constitutional law issues to say that uh, Congress has no power, you know, under the Commerce Clause to reach into uh, states like this. I mean, clearly that's not what he believes. He believes that uh, the federal government has the power to regulate virtually every aspect of your life from uh, how much water is in the toilet you flush to uh, how well weatherized your house is. I think it's probably asking a little much for him to take a principled constitutional position on this, but at least the difference in enforcement would be a move in a positive direction. More generally on Obama as someone who is going to be charged with executing the laws of our country, how do you all take his view of presidential power? I think it was always a little naive to expect that a guy who was running as the reincarnation of JFK 
was going to de-imperialize the presidency. And as we've discussed here, that there have been a number of moves in the national security area where he has dialed back some of the extravagant claims of executive, uncheckable executive power that the Bush administration made. Obama is a bundle of contradictions on these issues because although he doesn't believe, and, and he's right, and he should be commended for this, he doesn't believe that the president has the power to do whatever he wants in the name of national security. He seems to believe the president has the power to do virtually anything he wants in the area of economic security. For example, there was a, just before Christmas when the auto bailout bill failed in Congress, President Bush decided to just carry out the auto bailout anyway. One of his spokespeople, a guy named Tony Fratto, uh, gave a statement where he said, you know, this isn't the way we wanted it to be. We wanted Congress to be a partner on this issue. Uh, but Congress said, looked to the White House and said, you take care of it, which was kind of appalling. You know, the idea that the bailout bill failed in Congress, so the president would just do it anyway under uh, existing TARP legislation because Congress didn't want to be a partner. Well, that same day, the Barack Obama, the president-elect, issued a statement supporting President Bush's decision to do this. So even though he's uncomfortable with the idea of the president as ultimate constitutional decider in the area of national security, he is definitely comfortable with the executive branch having broad grants of power to remake the economy and reshape the commanding heights of finance by pure executive fiat. And how those two contradictory views of executive power will play out for the rest of this administration remains to be seen. But I think it's pretty unlikely that we're going to end up with a less powerful, less domineering president. David Richters? I think all the things that we're talking about are just symptomatic of that uh, the check is in the mail promise that we've gotten during the campaign on certain issues and, frankly, honest promises of broad overarching power and other issues, we're going to end up with the worst of both worlds if we're not careful. All right, gentlemen, David Richters, legal policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Gene Healy, vice president at the Cato Institute and author of the book, The Cult of the Presidency. You can order your copy at Cato.org. Is federal higher education funding a key driver of economic growth? And if it isn't, then why do the feds spend so much on higher ed? Researcher George Leaf suggests that prevailing notions about the value of college may do a disservice to young people who might be wasting years in a classroom. He spoke at a Cato Policy Forum in January. Now, how could people be so wrong? Well, it's because the conventional wisdom about higher education is mostly wrong. And I'd like to discuss three key components of that supposed wisdom. First, allegedly, we need to increase college attendance and graduation rates because more and more jobs require a college education. Outgoing Education Secretary Margaret Spellings used to say that in many of her speeches. The implication is that most of the work in the economy is becoming more and more difficult and demanding so that workers just won't be able to cope with it unless they've been to college. Now, the truth is quite a bit different. It isn't that work now requires a college education, but rather that more and more employers require that applicants have a college degree. 
That is to say, employers have increasingly taken to using college credentials as a screening device. With a glut of college graduates in the labor market, the reasoning goes, why bother interviewing those who haven't gone to college? They're probably less reliable and harder to train. Now, decades ago, having earned a college degree was a mark of distinction, but today, not having one is a stigma that simply gets an individual shut out from many jobs he could easily learn to do. Now, in their 19, 2005 book, Saving Education in the Age of Money, Harvard professors James Engel and Anthony Dangerfield really nailed this point, writing, I quote, the United States has become the most rigidly credentialized society in the world. A BA is required for jobs that by no stretch of imagination need two years full-time training, let alone four. Now, of course, there are some entry-level jobs that do call for serious post-secondary study, like engineering. But there aren't really very many of those jobs that demand advanced academic preparation, and that's a good thing because relatively few students want to do the difficult work necessary in college to master demanding fields, especially where there are right and wrong answers. Now, why that is the case would take us off into a totally new area of our failings in K-12, and I'm not going to do that, but I will suggest you read J. Martin Rochester's book, Class Warfare, or Saul Stern's book, Breaking Free, to get into that field. Now, the second component of the conventional wisdom that is so wrong is that the economy supposedly benefits if we put more people through college because college graduates earn more money. So if we want higher incomes, we can achieve that just by having more access to college. Now, it's undeniably true that on average, people who have been to college earn more than people who haven't. That comparison, however, is quite meaningless. Naturally, the college-educated group, containing nearly all of our sharpest and most ambitious people, will have higher earnings than the non-college group. But it's illogical to assume that just taking a person who would not have otherwise gone to college, processing through to a BA degree, is automatically going to enhance his earning capacity. Instead of looking at these average earning figures, it makes much more sense to look at people at the margin. Consider a hypothetical high school senior who has so-so grades and a so-so SAT score. He could get into some lower-tier school, pursue a degree in some undemanding major, and with that degree, he'd probably have a very good shot at, oh, maybe a management trainee job with Target stores. Not a really good return on investment. On the other hand, the same senior might decide to pursue training in precision machining, a field where there's a shortage of workers. If he does so, he'll start earning money sooner, probably earn quite a bit more. He'll have greater job security and no college debts. There are a lot of young people like that for whom a college degree is simply folly. Now, getting a college degree is no guarantee of elevated income. In fact, we have such a large number of college graduates these days that they're spilling over into jobs that call for no educational credentials whatsoever. The Bureau of Labor Statistics keeps track of educational level of people in a huge array of jobs. And the figures show that substantial numbers of college graduates are now found working in jobs like aerobics instructors, travel agents, retail sales supervisors, similar jobs pushing more young people into college, most of whom are going to be drawn from the multitudes of academically disinterested students, will only make that situation worse. Now, the third component of the conventional wisdom is that we must not fall behind other nations in regard to our educational attainment level. The higher ed establishment likes to point out that several other countries now surpass the US in the percentage of younger people who have college degrees, for instance, Canada, 
Japan and Belgium. We're told that this means we are losing our educational advantage, and we're supposed to conclude from this that bad things will happen to our economy unless we catch up and get back where we belong in first place. Now, this is really chicken little stuff. If increased formal education makes sense in other countries and enables them to become more productive, that doesn't do us any harm. As I've argued, the U.S. is already oversaturated with college graduates, and there is no point in trying to keep up with the international Joneses in this respect. This isn't a race, and we don't have to be first. British professor Alison Wolfe, in her excellent book, Does Education Matter?, wrote, and I quote, Two naive beliefs have a distorting influence, the belief that there is a simple, direct relationship between the amount of education in a society and its future growth rate, and the belief that governments can fine-tune education expenditures to maximize that rate of growth. Neither is correct. She points to examples of countries that have gone flat out to try to increase educational levels and had virtually no economic benefit from it, like Britain, and other countries that have not pushed higher education have remarkably good economies. Switzerland being a good case. Now, I agree with Professor Wolf. Higher education is not an elixir for economic growth. It does not ensure that students will acquire advanced skills. It does not ensure that they will have good paying jobs. Like everything else, there's an optimal point for spending on higher education, and I think it's clear that we're already past that point. How would we know where that point is? In contrast with the central planning mentality of the higher education establishment, which looks at these aggregate statistics and says, oh, we need more students in college, I maintain we should just leave this to the invisible hand of the marketplace. If an individual concludes that he'd benefit from additional education, he has lots of ways to do that. And if a company concludes it needs more workers with specific skills, it can provide inducements for current or prospective workers to take the necessary courses. Blunderbuss government programs, in contrast, are sure to be inefficient. So, to conclude, I'll leave you with this thought. A lot of people believe that the reason America is such a prosperous country is because we have invested so much in education for our people. I maintain that the truth is about the exact reverse of that. Only a really prosperous country could afford to have an education system that costs as much and delivers as little as ours does. What gets an economy moving? And what promise do President Obama's taxing and spending ideas hold for promoting long-term growth? J.D. Foster, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, joined Cato's Chris Edwards and Dan Mitchell on Capitol Hill in January for a briefing on the president's fiscal policies. I have a very simple message for you to make sure you get it at the outset and you'll see why as we go along. The economy is in real trouble. We can't afford stimulus that doesn't work. What's currently being discussed predominantly in Washington won't work. It's as simple as that. There are things that will work, and we'll get into that, and that's where we need to move. As to the economy being in deep trouble, the data just keeps pouring in. Yesterday's retail sales data, today's unemployment insurance claims data all point to the same reality. Best guess is the economy contracted at an annualized rate of about 6% in the fourth quarter. That's trend. There are things that can move it a little bit up or down, but your trend contraction rate, used to talk about growth rates, now I have to talk about contraction rates, about 6%, and the first quarter doesn't look a heck of a lot better. The optimists, of which I'm usually one, are expecting some kind of turnaround in the second half of this year, a forecast based almost entirely on faith and very little analysis.
We are in a real trouble, precipitated to large part by the financial crisis. Fred Mishkin, the former uh, governor at the Federal Reserve, a monetary policy expert of the first rank, said the financial crisis is worse than the Great Depression and would have been worse, but for the actions taken by the Fed. And I don't have any reason to dispute that. And the point of all this is we're in trouble. We need to be focusing on things that work and not things that are politically expedient. This isn't a time for ineffective measures. It's not a time for half measures. And it's certainly not a time for policies that make things worse. In fact, what we've been looking at now in Washington in terms of policy is Keynesian-style stimulus. Keynesian-style stimulus hasn't worked in the past. It hasn't worked in this country ever. It hasn't worked in other countries ever. It has a wonderful record of perfect failure. And that's what we're going to see again. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about spending or if you're talking about spending through the tax code. It gets the same result because it doesn't affect incentives. It just reallocates resources. And it doesn't matter whether you've got a shovel-ready project. It doesn't matter whether you've got individuals who are getting a check from the government and they spend it versus save it. It's utterly irrelevant. And the reason for that is very simple. When government has this ex additional deficit spending, it has to borrow from this side of the room to give the money to this side of the room to spend. That means this side of the room has less money to spend. The composition of demand changes. The total doesn't. All you're doing is reallocating, and you're doing it by government policy, which means you're allocating funds where they're not going to be spent as well. So that alone tells you you're going to be worse off if you pursue this course. As I said, it hasn't worked in the past. My colleague Bill Beach has dug up a wonderful quote, which I'll paraphrase, from Henry Morgenthau, who was the Treasury Secretary for FDR for uh, most of his presidency. He was testifying at the Ways and Means Committee in 1939. And the summary of his testimony is, we tried a lot of things. I have to apologize to the American people. We're as bad off today as we were when we started. The Great Deal program didn't work in the words of the Treasury Secretary charged to make it work. It hasn't worked in Japan when they tried it in the 1980s with a massive infrastructure spending program. In the end, all that did was build some really wonderful highways. If you get to go to Japan, drive around, they've got some bridges that are beautiful. It has nothing to do with stimulating their economy. It has to do with stimulating the infrastructure. And it doesn't just distort demand in the economy. We're looking now already, if you look at the CBO forecast and adjust for the usual things one has to adjust for CBO's uh, curiosities, we're looking at a budget deficit for this year and next on a cash flow basis in excess of $2 trillion before any stimulus. At $2 trillion over two years, that is an amount of financing never seen before by, in this country. If $2 trillion of deficit spending pushing something in the order of 6 or 7% of GDP were stimulative, if deficit spending were stimulative, $2 trillion would have our economy poised to soar. We wouldn't be talking about a stimulus package if we really believe this worked. Now, the people who are advancing it don't really believe it worked or they've got themselves convinced by some strange means. But if $2 trillion of deficit funding, deficit spending doesn't work, what makes you think another trillion dollars will make any difference? Well, of course it won't. But matters are actually even worse as we're coming to see and we look at the bond markets. This is a, a stimulus plan in which between our own country and countries around the world, they're talking about issuing something in the order of two to two and a half trillion dollars worth of additional government debt next year. Now, even for global capital markets, that's a lot of money. When you've got that amount of government debt hitting the capital markets, you got a real question of whether they can absorb it. 
and the markets are starting to doubt that they can, especially when you realize that the great source of global capital for the last two years outside of OPEC consistently year after year has been China, exporting global savings to everybody else, largely buying up U.S. Treasury bonds, while China in the fourth quarter contracted. And we always think of China's economy growing at 8, 9, 10 percent. In fact, they just revised up the previous year's growth rate to 13 percent. Sounds good. But in the last quarter, they contracted. In this quarter, they're likely to contract. They've been infected by the same global recessionary bug as everybody else. So that great source of global saving that's been soaking up government debt and underwriting much of the leveraging of the global economy is going to stop. At the same time, as I said, global governments are going to be issuing $2.5 trillion worth. Now, we've traditionally, I certainly have, I think Dan Chris have as well, in the past said, well, you know, deficits don't really matter that much to the economy. The markets can absorb two, three, four hundred billion dollars worth of borrowing. May not always be wise, but it's not going to drive up interest rates. You start talking about two and a half trillion dollars worth globally, you're driving up interest rates. So now you've got a stimulus program that not only doesn't stimulate, but in all likelihood is going to drive up real interest rates and break on the economy. This is a truly foolish policy. This is the kind of thing we shouldn't be debating, we shouldn't be thinking about. If anything, what we should be thinking about on the spending side is cutting spending. If you want to grow the economy right now, make sure we don't drive up real interest rates. Look at that trillion dollar deficit as your starting point and say, man, we need to be cutting spending, taking pressure off of the interest rates to help the economy, not adding to pressure on interest rates to drive the economy up. So in summary, the Obama plan is not stimulus. It's not even anti-stimulus. It's de-stimulus. It's going to slow the economy down. It's not a stimulus plan. It's a debt plan. It's a big debt plan. We got into trouble by borrowing a lot globally. We're now going to get into more trouble by borrowing even more. The debate in Washington over economic stimulus quickly hit upon one of the key ways we measure economic impacts multipliers. When they're accurate, they can tell us roughly how stimulative policy can be for economic activity. In a Cato Daily podcast from January, economist Arnold Kling said the debate about multipliers has overlooked some important facts. Let me talk about the concept of a multiplier effect, because the intuition of that makes sense, although it gets deceptive. A multiplier effect simply means that if I give you a job and I pay you and you were previously unemployed, well, now you have money to spend, and then you spend that money, and that maybe increases demand somewhere else, and someone else gets a job, and so on. And so the economic activity multiplies on itself. That's the ordinary intuition. And in an economy that's in a recession or a deep depression, that intuition makes a lot of sense but realize that there has to be a limit to that. You can't go beyond full employment. So we know that that process is not unlimited. And so often in policy discussions, they'll talk about the multiplier. For example, Christina Romer and Jared Bernstein said, we assume that the multiplier is 1.57 for government spending. And immediately you know that's wrong because it can't be a constant, because if the government spent $100 trillion, 
that wouldn't create an economy of $157 trillion. I mean, it'd be wonderful if it did, but we know that it can't. In fact, if the government were to spend $100 trillion, given that you know, our GDP is one-fifth of that, that would be a Zimbabwe strategy. It would be hyperinflation. It would reduce our output. In fact, it would drive us into the ground. So I think the most misleading thing to do is to talk about the multiplier as if it were a constant number. It is correct in an economy with unemployed resources to suggest that there are multiplier effects, but it's very hard to pin down and quantify them, and it depends a lot on the time frame. Another way to think about a multiplier is in the old-fashioned macro models that we used to run back when I was at the Federal Reserve. In fact, they still have these sorts of models. And what you would do is you would generate a model forecast, which you'd call the baseline forecast. Then you would generate an alternative forecast with higher levels of government spending, and then you would project how much higher GDP would be. And that would vary by period. You might see a maximum effect, let's say, two years after the change. But it would also vary by the state of the business cycle, because if you start that process at full employment, you obviously are going to get nothing. The government is just going to be stealing money from the private sector. If you start it with a lot of unemployed resources, then you're more likely to get something. The assumption being that a stimulus is only effective when it moves resources from a less productive state to a more productive state. The implicit assumption is that it moves them from an unemployed state to a productive state. But in practice, that actually is not so easy to engineer in a complex economy. Like, let's say today, where are the unemployed resources? Well, my daughter has a friend who was laid off by one of the big financial firms and is off gallivanting in a foreign country using his severance pay. Well, how are we going to put him back to work? Are we going to you know, put him on a bulldozer and uh, let him build a road? Somehow I don't think that's what he has in mind. So it's not as easy as it sounds. It's not just this mathematical exercise that the multiplier makes it sound. And in the end, it's not as obvious that government is any better suited toward to bringing unemployed resources to work than the private sector. And that's a point that Robert Barrow is making in his op-ed today, is that we really have not demonstrated that government is any better at it. And instead, for example, some of the government spending may be used on people who are already employed. You know, the Washington, D.C. area has some of the richest counties in the country, and they're just going to get richer. That doesn't necessarily you know, improve the economy as a whole. And then a lot of the people who are unemployed are going to remain unemployed because they have to align their skills to something that needs doing in the economy, and that's just going to take time. And the government is not necessarily any better than the private sector at aligning the jobs that it creates with the skills that need employment. In 2005, Suzette Kilo became the face of eminent domain abuse. In a controversial 5-4 Supreme Court decision, Kilo lost her home to her local community, only to find years later that the promised development and the tax revenue the government was so eager to get never materialized. Kilo spoke at the Cato Institute in January. 
Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Suzette Kilo, and the government stole my home. First, the municipal government of my hometown, New London, Connecticut, stole it. Then the state of Connecticut said it was legal for them to take it. Finally, the federal government said it was constitutional to steal not only my home, but the homes of all my neighbors, and in fact, anyone's home for the purpose of economic development. Basically, what that means, if someone who can add more to the grand list of your town or city than you and your property can be made history. Even though 40 states have passed legislation offering some protection for home and business owners, don't think your property is safe because it is not. Over 10 years ago, I was lucky enough to find a great deal on a house with a terrific view of the Thames River, the Long Island Sound, and the Atlantic Ocean in New London, Connecticut. I spent every spare moment fixing it up and making it the kind of home I had always dreamed of. I'm sure you've heard the expression, location, location, location. Well, this was the wrong location, only I didn't know it yet. Until I picked up the paper one morning in 1998 and discovered that Pfizer Pharmaceutical was coming to town. And one of the things that Pfizer did not want, according to the Pfizer executive, who just happened to be the husband of Claire Gaudiani, president of New London Development Corporation, was to look out their windows and see tenement buildings. Maybe we did not live in grand manners that the Pfizer executives lived in, but our homes were well cared for, we paid our taxes, and we lived in a neighborhood that was comfortable for us. But we weren't going to be comfortable for long. For 10 long years, we fought to keep our homes, we fought the media, we fought in the media, we fought in the city council and the legislative offices, we fought in the courts, we won the support of the public, but the politicians made our lives hell. Eviction notices were posted on our doors Thanksgiving Eve. Our neighbors' homes were demolished around us. Our streets were shut down. Some of us became ill. Some of us even died. Even the air was difficult to breathe from the demolitions and the blasting around us. But we never gave up because we believed that this land was our land until the United States Supreme Court told us and the world differently. What the Supreme Court basically said was our land was only our land until someone else could make better use of it and pay more taxes. Even though we, the plaintiffs in Kelo versus New London case, lost our personal battle, the war is still being fought. As a result of the Supreme Court's unbelievable ruling, a majority of the states have passed legislation offering more protection to American property owners. Probably everyone who has ever given a speech hopes that something he or she says will be worth remembering. And I hope you remember this. If it's true that it takes an entire village to raise a child, then we and our children are in serious trouble. Although 42 states have passed laws providing more protection against the, use, the abuse of eminent domain, there are still many places where neighborhoods are destroyed to make way for malls, hotels, and spas. And the people who suffer the most are not only the American children, but also our elderly. Chief Joseph of the Nez Pierce Indian said, the white man made us many promises, but he kept only one. He said he'd take our land, and he did. This still continues. Let just be the generation, be the one to bring this terrible abuse to an end. Thank you.
Security expert Bruce Schneier says much of the popular thinking about terrorism obfuscates our efforts at fighting the real but often overstated threat posed by terrorists. Schneier suggests that instead of asking whether protections against terrorism are effective, we should be asking whether our security spending constitutes a good use of finite resources. Schneier spoke at the Cato Institute's two-day counterterrorism conference in January. I want to mention two concepts to sort of help explain sort of what we've been seeing in the past couple of days. The first one is something called security theater. And security theater is a uh, security measure designed to look good but not actually do anything. And an example might be, if you remember in the months after 9-11, we had National Guard troops in our airports. They were after airport security, sitting there on rubber mats with uniforms and big guns. Those guns had no bullets. And probably best because they were like 18, and I don't know if we really trust them in a situation. But that was security theater, designed to make people feel better but not actually do very much. The other phrase is a movie plot threat. And a movie plot threat is an overly specific threat that we think about. And you remember this, right? Terrorists with crop dusters and terrorists with scuba gear. And we heard yesterday about the infected terrorist going on an airplane, right? I mean, those are very specific threats that we tend to resonate with and respond to. And what I want to talk about here is less about actual security and more about how we perceive it. Because I think if we're going to understand priorities and budgeting and trade-offs and what to do, we need to understand how we think about it. So security is actually two different things, right? There's a feeling and a reality, and they're different. You can be secure even though you don't know it, and you can feel secure even if you're not. Right? They're not the same. And we, I think we really need to split them apart and talk about both of them separately. Language is a problem here because we use the same words for both concepts. So economically, security is a trade-off. Right? There's no such thing as absolute security. Despite sort of late 20th century rhetoric to the contrary, life is risk. There's no such thing as risk-free existence. And security always involves trade-offs. When I was growing up, I grew up in New York City, and I had friends who lived in a gated community who gave up some freedom of movement for some security. Right? So there are extreme trade-offs, and there are, there are basic ones. The question to ask, we've been hearing a lot of, is this security measure effective? Right? That's the wrong question. Is it a good use of a security dollar? Right? We would all be safer if we wore a bulletproof vest. We have decided that living where we are, that it's sort of not worth the cost and the inconvenience and loss of fashion sense. I was talking with Jeremy just before this panel, and he told me there's a stat that about two-thirds of automobile-related deaths can be avoided if we all wore helmets in our cars. I'll guarantee you none of you will go out and do that, even though driving is the single most dangerous thing you probably do in your life. Right? Security is a trade-off. These trade-offs are personal. They're less about math and more about how we feel. There's no right or wrong. Some of us have a burglar alarm, some of us don't. They're based on intuition more than data. And we make these trade-offs every day. It's part of being alive. Everybody does it. All species do it. Imagine a rabbit in a field eating grass. The rabbit sees a fox. He's going to make a security trade-off. Should I stay or should I flee? And the rabbits that are good at it 
will tend to live and reproduce, and the rabbits that are bad at it will either get eaten or starve. So a question I've been looking at for the past couple of years is, right, as a successful species on the planet, you, me, all of us should be really good at making security trade-offs. Yet, as we're learning, you know, yesterday and today, we're hopelessly bad at it. Right? The question is why? The short answer is we make trade-offs based on the feeling of security rather than the reality. But most of the time, this works. Most of the time, the feeling and reality are the same. Certainly, this is true of human prehistory. Certainly, this is true when our brains developed, when our intuitions about risk management developed. There's a lot of work being done in evolutionary psychology looking at how we make trade-offs and how we make decisions. And they all show up, all these, I mean, I'm going to mention some risk biases, show up because they make evolutionary sense, right? We are a species of satisficers. Our brains do all sorts of cognitive shortcuts. I remember Mia said yesterday the plural of anecdote is not data. She's actually wrong. It's even worse. The singular of anecdote is data. Even worse, the singular of fictional story is data. We are a species of storytellers. We respond to stories. You could read as much crime stat you want in New York City, and it won't affect you. Your cousin gets mugged when he was vacationing last month. You're not going. That is the way we think. Right? That's stuck on an airplane. You know, great movie plot. And we can imagine it, right? It's got Bruce Willis starring or Matt Damon, and we know how it comes out, and this is what we fear. Right? Our brains do this because in prehistory it makes sense. We get our risk perceptions from our sensory input. Right? These days, sensory input comes from the media. It comes from stories. So a movie is much more salient to us than dry data, even though it's fiction. The TV series 24 does more to affect foreign policy and, and so domestic terrorism policy than any data to us, to people. Right? I mean, the, one of the ways evolutionary psychologists put it is that our brains are optimized for 100,000 BC. I mean, we are really good at making security trade-offs endemic to living in small family groups in the East African highlands at 100,000 BC. Right? 2009 in Washington, D.C., you know, not so much. Right? We're less good at that. And we'll see, the media does perturb our risk perception, right? Because it makes rare things seem more common because they're more talked about. I tell people, if it's in the media, don't worry about it. The definition of news is something that hardly ever happens. That's what news is. So if it's in the news, don't worry about it. When it's so common, it's no longer news. Automobile crashes, domestic violence. Those are the risks you should worry about, but that's not the way we think. There's a lot of work done. I didn't print the paper because it's long, but if you go on Google and type psychology of security, there's a long paper I wrote on a lot of these issues, on how we perceive risk and cost and trade-offs. And it's a huge confluence of research from experimental psychology, behavioral economics, cognitive science, game theory, neuroscience. I've mentioned evolutionary psychology anthropology, sociology, some philosophy. There's a lot of really interesting work being done here. Maybe I'll give you some sort of biases and risk perception, and some of which we've heard over the past couple of days. Right? We exaggerate spectacular and rare and downplay common. 
right? Flying versus driving. If you're flying home, the cab ride's the most dangerous part of your trip, especially here in DC, right? The unknown is perceived to be riskier than the familiar. It's riskier over there in a foreign country where it's strange than it is here, even though the crime rates might not be the same. Personified risks are greater than anonymous risks. You know, we made bin Laden more scary because we use his name a lot. We tend to overestimate involuntary risks and underestimate voluntary risks. Very strong cognitive bias. Once you do it, you kind of decide it's okay. So, you know, earthquakes versus smoking. I mean, I mean so some of those examples. So I tend to have a very relativistic theory of security. It depends on the observer. And I think that goes a lot to explain some of these budgetary anomalies we're seeing. Every security decision has multiple stakeholders, and the stakeholder that's in charge of the decision will make the decision that's best for them. I mean, you'll see this in families and businesses. You'll see it in nations. So to understand what's happening, not only understand how security works, you need to understand who's making the decision and what I think of as their agenda. I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean what they bring to the decision. So you saw this very graphically in the debate about a year after 9-11, whether you should arm airplane pilots. You see the agendas. The airplane pilots were all in favor of it because, you know, carrying guns is kind of cool. The flight attendants hated it because they had this scenario in their head of the pilot and the gun on this side of the door and the terrorists and them on that side of the door, and they just hated the way that came out. The uh, airlines kept thinking holes in my fuselage right, and framed the debate that way. Pretty much everybody else took this as a referendum on gun control. And depending on whether you thought of gun control is what you thought of the issue. Very little debate on the actual merits of the policy. That's agenda. And very often, security decisions are made for non-security reasons. And I think this is extremely important for all of us to understand. Security is so often not about security. It's about something else. So when you think of agenda, remember the question I asked the first day about how is it politically tenable for the new administration to, to not do things? Because your agenda is to overestimate the threat. Right? The agenda of a government is to overestimate the threat. You want to be seen as doing something. So visible is better than invisible. Funding Arabic translators, nobody sees. A new program, everybody sees. Spending money is better than holding back. Creating new is better than fixing old. Response is better than preparation. I mean, if I'm the new administration and I prep and nothing happens, I've wasted my money. Worse, if something else, something happens in four years or eight years, the other guy gets the credit. I am smarter as a politician to hold the money back and when something happens, a Katrina, some kind of event, to spend money then because it looks like I'm doing something. Right, what's the agenda of the police? The agenda tends to be for police state-like security measures, not because they're evil, because that's the way they think. You put the police in charge of trade-offs, you tend to get identification, surveillance, arrest and detainment powers. I mean, those are the sorts of things that a police is going to want, because that's their agenda. Now, you put corporations in charge of security, you tend to get Security trade-offs that equal business trade-offs, right? which makes great sense in some circumstances and no sense in others. So depending on who is in charge of the decision or in greater decisions who has the most influence, that's why you get some of these odd responses.
I mean, I think that the DHS constant budgeting is because sort of the agenda was no one wanted to piss off anybody, right? This is a windfall, let's all get it. So the decision was not made for security reasons but for political reasons. It might be valid, but as security people, it kind of pisses us off. If the market drives security, right, people are making trade-offs. They're making trade-offs based on the feeling of security and not the reality. So the economic incentives, both for, you know, in business and in a political sense, are to make people feel secure. And there are two ways to do this. You can make people actually secure and hope they notice, or you can make people just feel secure and hope they don't notice. Both of those work. Both of those satisfy the economic incentive. So the question is, what makes people notice? When do you notice that the feeling of security doesn't match reality? Well, you notice when you have an understanding of security, the systems, the limitations, the threats, the risks, right? you know what's going on. When there are enough real-world examples, right? if I do some security theater to reduce the crime rate and it doesn't go down, you'll notice. Because there are enough examples right, in your neighborhood, in your community, that you'll know, but this isn't working. That's important. Security theater is exposed when it's obvious it's not working. So what makes people not notice? A poor understanding of the risks of the costs, not enough examples. This is a problem we have in terrorism. We have an inherent problem here of low probability events. I remember Ashcroft saying about two years after 9-11, it's been two years and there have been no terrorist attacks. That proves my policies were working. And I'm sitting in the audience, I actually was there, I was thinking, there were no terrorist attacks two years before 9-11. You didn't have any policies. What does that prove? It proves that terrorist attacks are rare. And the other thing, and the thing that's hardest to deal with, is feelings that cloud the issue. Cognitive biases, fears, folk beliefs, right? bad models of security tend to make us make non-optimal security decisions. So what does all this apply that Obama can do? And a lot of what he can do is to reframe the debate, right, to talk about this differently. In addition to doing things, I think the most important thing he could do is talk about it differently. Think about eight years of talking about this wrong. And some talking about this better thing will go a long way to making us feel safer and accept policies that make us actually safer. Two important items have just been added to Cato's website, Cato.org. The first, a new book, In the Name of Justice, providing insights on needed reforms to the criminal justice system, written by leading national authorities. The second is July's Cato University in San Diego. This year's program, Economic Crisis, War, and the Rise of the State, is a superb opportunity to learn how the state has expanded during times of crisis, threats to liberty that have arisen, and what can be done to restrain or reverse government growth. All of this and more is available at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.